You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking all about real life women in space. <laughs> Just this month, Barack Obama awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, America's highest civilian honor, to a 97 year old mathematician named Katherine Coleman Goebel Johnson. You might not have heard her name in history class, but Katherine did some life saving work back in 1962. In her job at NASA, she calculated the trajectory for astronaut John Glenn's pioneering space mission, the first ever orbit of Earth. Catherine co-authored the research and equations that laid out how to send Glenn into orbit and how to bring him back home safely. Johnson is just one part of a cadre of African-American women who did crucial calculations for the space workforce during the Cold War. Author Margot Lee Shetterly tells the stories of these women in her new book, Hidden Figures, the African-American women mathematicians who helped NASA and the United States win the space race. My dad is, um, he's now retired um, NASA research scientist. And so um, I grew up in Hampton, Virginia. And Hampton is the site of the very first installation of what would become NASA, but at the time when it was founded, uh, back in basically during World War I, it was called the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Um, so, but my dad um, started work at uh, the Langley Research Center um, in, uh, in 1964 as a co-op and then 1966 full-time. And um, so I grew up around, you know, a lot of people who worked at NASA. Um, who were engineers or research scientists or mathematicians, and a lot of whom were African-American and a lot of whom were women, and a lot of whom were both African-American women. So it sort of seemed normal to me. I, you know, I grew up in, in something that, uh, you know, over time I realized to be very unusual. Um, but uh, for me as a kid, the face of science was quite diverse. You know, the federal government uh, and government-sponsored science uh, proved to be uh, robust and interesting and very good careers for a lot of African-Americans and a lot of women, um, and uh, a, a great way to, you know, sort of get that a piece of that American dream and, and have a middle-class lifestyle and bring up their kids, you know, my generation, um, with a lot of the... Um, you know, access to education and comfort and things like that, that that everybody, you know, across America wants for their children. What what kind of challenges did women working at NASA face at that time? And did they find community with each other in some significant ways? Right. Well, um, so we before we talk about the 1960s, we have to go back to the 1930s and 40s, which is really the most uh, probably even more startling part of the story, which is that um, this story starts 20, 25 years before the space program. So uh, before there was space, there was aeronautics. And um, so before there was the National Air and Space Administration, there was the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And uh, starting in 1935, there at the Langley Research Center, which was then called the Langley uh, Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia, um, Engineers said, you know, this, this, uh, there, you know, it's a very, as you might imagine, um, a very mathematically intense process. They were testing planes, making planes better, improving planes. I mean, this was sort of, you know, the early part of the 20th century when the airplane was still relatively new. And um, 
there was a huge amount of data associated with that. The engineers made the decision to uh, perform kind of a human experiment, which was to see if uh, a computing pool, the same way that there was a stenographic pool and they'd have uh, women who um, took different parts of typing assignments and things like that, if a computing pool might be a, an efficient way to process the data that came from aeronautical research. Well, lo and behold, um, the first five women who were in this pool uh, were smart math graduates, um, former teachers in many cases, and it was a success. Um, they started steadily started hiring more women. Um, and it, 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 that to that point, until 1943, they were all white women. What happened in 1943 is that the demands for computing power and uh, smart female computing power were so great, and you know, with men going off to fight, um, and at the same time, there were skyrocketing demands for um, faster, better, safer airplanes. Uh, they hired a group of African-American women. And this is after the pressure from uh, a civil rights leader named A. Philip Randolph. He basically uh, pressured Roosevelt into issue issuing something called Executive Order 8802, which said, thou shalt not discriminate um, in the war industries and the federal government. So it was, it was after that executive order, uh, 18 months later, that the first group of segregated uh, segregated group of African-American women, um, mathematicians started working at the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia. Um, so, so this is all a very long backstory, but um, so those women, uh, they did the same work as their white counterparts, but they were forced to use, as you might imagine, in the segregated South, uh, colored-only bathrooms, colored-only cafeteria, and of course, in the town itself, um, it was segregated. You know, lunch counters, um, schools, hospitals, everything, every aspect of life was segregated. Um, but this was an opening for those women. So the job of computer isn't something that really exists these days. Can you tell us about what these women would have been doing um, at NASA? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's it's only relatively recently that a computer refers to a piece of electronic hardware and not to a person who frequently was a woman. Um, and, you know, the job title, as, as it indicates, is someone who computes a computer. They would simulate flights by having, let's say, a scale model of an airplane, put it in a wind tunnel, instead of flying the plane through the air, they would have giant turbine, turbines that blew the air over the uh, over the uh, the model of the airplane. They had all kinds of um, instruments, actually, that they designed themselves specifically to uh, capture and record basically every aspect of either the plane or um, the model in the wind tunnel, and um, there, there's a huge amount of you know, so a huge amount of uh, data that came out of this. So some of the women uh, were in charge of uh, looking at these instruments and recording the data. So imagine you know looking at uh, some kind of instrument every you know two minutes or every thirty seconds or whatever the interval is, and taking recording and putting it in a huge data sheet, just marking it down. And then some of the women uh, did more theoretical work. So instead of necessarily putting a plane in a wind tunnel, 
and uh, taking data and sort of doing this empirical work, maybe they would take their knowledge of geometry and trigonometry and um, multivariate calculus and uh, physics and uh, using higher mathematics would come up with theoretical ideas about uh, how the plane would be better and how to um, make changes and improve the aircraft. So there, there is this full spectrum, um, everything from, you know, sort of simple calculations to extremely high-level math that, that these women did over time. So for your book, Hidden Figures, you talked to um, some of the women who worked as computers at NASA during this time. How did they describe their feelings towards their job and the work environment? Well, I mean, I, the thing about it is, you know, and I was saying that you look at Mad Men or, you know, you look at the norms of the 40s and 50s and the 60s and what's acceptable then is simply not acceptable now, you know. And it wasn't that, you know, it, that they didn't acknowledge those issues, you know what I mean? And that and that people were fighting to change those. You know, a lot of, of these women were very active in their communities, very active in organizations that were fighting for civil rights and that were working in their communities to make these changes. Um, so, uh, you know, there there is simply... Uh, of course, they, you know, acknowledged uh, the the uh, you know these these horribly difficult parts of of going to work each day, you know, in that in that situation. But at the same time, uh, they loved their jobs. I mean, this is sort of a you know one of these things where it's glass half empty, glass half full. Uh, because when these openings happened, you know, when these jobs first started to become available. This was a new thing for women and for African-Americans, and particularly for African-American women, you know, where if you uh, were a math graduate and you were a talented young woman who wanted to make your math, your mark in math or science, the way it was going to happen was in the classroom. I mean, these this was the expectation for even the most talented of, of women coming out of uh, school with an undergraduate math degree, or even a graduate math degree for that matter. Uh, and all of a sudden, here's a job where you're going to be a professional mathematician. You know, you're going to challenge yourself and, you know, apply these things that perhaps you learned in college and actually work on something that is really exciting. I mean, John Glenn's flight, um, you know, they're getting ready, they're counting down for his flight, which was in February of 1962. And, um, you know, as part of the final checklist before he he took off for this pioneering orbital flight that really changed the balance in the space race and in the Cold War between the United States and the Russians, um, one of his checklist items was have the girl, and at this point all of the women, regardless of color, um, were called girls. Uh, he said, have the girl to double check the numbers. You know, and the girl was Katherine Johnson. She had been there since 1953. You know, if you ask her, it's about her experience uh, over the years as a mathematician. Um, it's exuberant, you know. I mean, it's not that they don't acknowledge the difficulties. They do. But at the same time, um, these were people who took their work and their jobs and this opportunity very seriously and gave their all to it. And then, of course, just this month is the really exciting news that Katherine Johnson was awarded the Presidential Medal of uh, Freedom for her work. I mean, that, that was just so exciting to see her there. And so in your, in your work, you interviewed a lot of women who worked in NASA's space program. And I'm wondering, 
what stories resonated with you personally. Can you share with us another story of a, of a specific woman that, that really connected with you? There's a woman whose name was Dorothy Vaughn, and Dorothy Vaughn, so back in the days, uh, you know, the early days, the 1940s and 1950s particularly, um, the black women were working in a segregated group. Originally, uh, there was a white woman or and uh, sort of a section head and an assistant section head, but the two managers were white women, and the women who worked in the group were black. Um, but eventually, a woman named Dorothy Vaughn, who came to Langley in 1943 and had been a math teacher for many years before that, um, but like so many people, she came to, um, to made her way to Hampton during the war. Um, Dorothy Vaughn uh, eventually rose to be the head of that group, the West Computers. Um, this was in 1951 that she was officially made section head of that group. Um, and what that meant is that she was a manager. And, um, you know, I've interviewed so many people, um, black and white, male and female, and so many people have memories of Dorothy Vaughn as being both a very, very good mathematician, but also a very good manager and somebody who was an advocate um, for not just the black women in her group, but also uh, white women who were not in her group, who perhaps were subject to um, you know, the same thoughts about women and their limits and their capabilities. Um, and why does that resonate with you personally? Why does she stand out so much? And when, when you talk to her or talk about her, what, what does it make you feel? Uh, you know, I think it was, I think it's probably the idea, um, that back so long ago, you know, I mean, and, you know, when I first started my career, I worked on Wall Street, you know, and I was an African-American woman in a largely um, male and predominantly white workplace. Um, I just imagine as a woman um, in, you know, what was then like the 90s and 2000s in a workplace like that, um, what would it be like in 1943, you know, completely unknown, you know, never having worked in an integrated situation um, in a state where segregation is the the, the law of the land um, and having sort of, you know, everyday courage, I guess I would say, I'd call it, um, you know, to take take these these this the, the slights, you know, to have to go to the segregated bathroom, but then to have the courage to really advocate for the women around you. Um, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that you, you kind of hope that you, in, in some measure, you know, have inherited. I think that idea of having everyday courage, regardless of what job you work in, is a really special one. I think everybody has to kind of find... Um, courage to advocate for themselves and for other people, even if they're, you know, behind a desk in any office or regardless of what your job is, even if you're not a rocket scientist. <laughs> when I think about these women and there were, you know, there were hundreds of women, um, you know, all told, you know, if you look at the total group, black and white, um, hundreds of women doing this work. Um, but I think it's the everyday courage to be in a new situation um, where the expectations are very low, perhaps, and to stick with it and just, you know, 
through force of will and through your own talent, decide that you're going to, you know, defy those expectations. You know, that that takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of guts and a lot of gumption. And I feel like, um, you know, I, I find these women to be role models. I've learned so much from their stories. author Margot Lee Shatterly. Her book Hidden Figures comes out from HarperCollins in fall of 2016. 